Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levita. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. So think back to when you were in primary school and you were picturing your adult life. Where did you think you would live? Growing up Australian, I feel like it's near the beach, right? (laughs) Everyone kind of strives towards the beach, even though I'm incredibly pale and I hate the water. Um, So I was thinking, like, I guess manly way is, I guess, what was kind of instilled into my mind. in a house? In a house, I guess. Uh, It it was, that's what you're brought up in, right? Yeah. I I know for myself, I never had any doubt that I would live in anything but a house. Mm. But now you look around Sydney, it's unachievable. Funny you say that, though, because a vast majority of my friends in primary school actually grew up in apartments, which is something that is ever more common now. Even back in my area where I grew up around Hornsby, apartment complexes absolutely everywhere. And you know what? A lot of those are still, they're renters. And that's a problem if you're a renter for life, because if you retire, how do you keep paying your rent? We'll be looking at that a little bit later on, speaking to a guy called Professor Alan Morris, who's written a book called The Australian Dream, Housing Experiences of Older Australians. But up first... And it all changed in January this year. I was invited to a land council meeting and um, had the typical alpha female with the arms crossed. Who's this guy, you know? And Vicky Bell, the president of the land council, out of the blue says, Alan, tell your story, you've got 10 minutes. And this woman was saying, oh, another person who wants to become part of the land council, here we go. And I said, and my grandmother was Mary Lamb. She said, the Lambs? Oh, I went to school with the Lambs. So all of a sudden, that one little moment created the connectivity, which created the opportunity to get this to happen. Forty years of age, my uh, wife decided that my children need to have a bit more of a history than know who my their grandmother and grandfather was on my side of the family, which was unknown because I had a disjointed family. This is Alan Teal. So she decided to do a family tree as my 40th birthday present. And then there was an alarm bell that rang that said that um, my great-grandmother um, had to get permission from the Aboriginal Protection Board to travel to Sydney to go to a hospital. So the only reason you do that is you're an Aboriginal Australian. And this was unknown to me at 40 years of age because in the country, there's still, a lot, if you don't look dark-skinned and things like that, they don't tell you because you have a better, easier travel through school and that. But it was interesting because I look back and I thought the guys that I was close to were the Aboriginal boys. And I thought it was because we were always in trouble because we are mischievous. But there's got to be... Speaking to elders, they say, no, there's a spirit that goes through and, you know, you're connected to this earth, this land and that's what it was about. From that, now, and, and, you know, like, really, what can I do? How can I help? discovered his roots while undertaking a PhD in the Faculty of Design, Architecture and Building at the University of Technology, Sydney, working alongside Campbell Drake. Yeah, I'm Campbell Drake. I'm a lecturer of interior spatial design. And a number of others from the university. They're working on a project 
a revitalisation project for Murren Bridge, a land in central New South Wales connected to Alan's ancestors. Tell me more about Murren Bridge. Murren Bridge was an Aboriginal mission where the communities from three different areas were moved. And when you read the story of why they were moved from the Ningan and outraining areas was because there was a shortage of water and they didn't want the Aboriginal people to take the water that the stock would drink that were grazing on the land. So they moved them to another location so it wouldn't impact the pastoral interests of the pastoralists out there. So they were taken off their traditional lands and put together um, at Murren Bridge, which has become home to three different groups of people. The Wiradjuri people is my people, and there's two other groups. It was a very harsh mission run by the state, and in, uh, it was given back in the 1970s, I think, something like that, was it, Campbell? The Land Council itself was formed in 1993. 1993. But I think with the, um, in 1983, it was oh, a significant yeah. act that was passed in which these missions were then uh, self-managed self by Indigenous community who live there. I think a lot of it is that there's not a lot to, even though they're only 13 kilometres from the town, there's not a lot of employment. And people move, like they, they move out of the district, like it's like country towns. Um, if we don't start supporting it, and I think uh, the community was breaking down a little bit. The community centre, which is being established, used to be the health centre. Well, the health services were moved into town. So that was, they felt as though another thing was being taken away from the community. Geographically, you have Lake Cajeligo and then Murren Bridge is almost like a satellite. So yep. it's only 10 minutes by yeah. car, but it's a long way to walk and there are no transport to bring, or specifically to bring people to into Lake Cajeligo. Yeah. And my understanding in the last five, 10 years, there was also policy or incentive by the government that people would move into other larger regional centres. Um, for I think it was more of a, um, an economic imperative. Um, however, and with that, I think a lot of elders also moved, um, and that is really the kind of the glue of the community. So once elders Start move to, to other areas, then their, their kids will follow. If you haven't got a, a reason to be there, um, it's pretty easy to leave. Now, all of a sudden, we've got something coming back to the town. There's this energy starting to be generated. There's a young guy by the name of Horace. He really sees the need to get involved to help make the change for the youth that are living out there. And that's good because he's not... How old would Horace be? Tut tell, but yeah. I'd, I'd suggest um, <laughs> 40s maybe. 40s. He could be older. Yeah, he's not an elder elder, but he's mm-hmm. out of the troubled years and, and he, he knows that if something's not done, there's going to be another generation of wasted youth. There's this new buzz being generated and it's been generated by people coming in and, and giving and, and it's sort of like it's surprising the difference that can make that someone cares the Murren Bridge project started with a brief from the Prime Minister's cabinet 
Paul McFadgen from the Prime Minister's Cabinet came to us with a brief of kind of four parts. One was which to refurbish the existing health clinic into a community centre, um, also to do some upgrades of sports facilities, and then there's a cemetery there, which is very significant. And then there was a, another brief which came forward, which was about a series of murals, which was really about sort of celebrating Indigenous art and similarly to uh, begin to revitalise the town. Back to Horace for a second. So Horace works for the Green Army now, I yep. understand. So he is a coordinator for other local men who do the maintenance of Murrum Bridge. So they've got their own equipment, including tractors and thrashers and mm. uh, mowers, and they also do the rubbish collection because it sits just outside. Can you explain in the, terms of its jurisdiction? The Lachlan River is the border, and Murrum Bridge is in the Coba Council, which is at the furthest extremity of Coba council, Shire Council, so no support, yet the rates go to Coba. So we're in the process now of applying to get a boundary realignment and the Coba Council agree to it because the Condobolin Council have been supportive in a lot of ways, but they run a bus every now and again to for the elders and things like that, and now they want to do more support for the community. So you've got this a sort of offshoot of the Lachlan run through is the boundary of the two different shires. And after the um, change, it will be included in where they believe they'll be able to give a lot more support to the community. Things like rubbish collection rubbish and collection. basic services, which at the moment is sitting between two jurisdictions, so yeah. they, it has to be self-managed. Yeah. yeah, there's no rubbish collection. We've got our, they've got their own sewer plant and everything like that, which is maintained by the land council, not by the shire. A lot of the things, the good things that are happening for the community, are driven by Paul McFadgen from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. The issues where it's really exciting for the community now having the input from people like Campbell is that Paul being at some point will move on and you just hope that this will keep going because it'll be devastation you know, to the community to lose the, the momentum that's been created. Earlier this year, Alan, Campbell and 35 of Campbell's second-year design students travelled to Murren Bridge to meet with the community. It was then they conversed and together designed a plan of what would work best in revitalising Murren Bridge. All these conversations, all these plans are being put together into a proposal that they'll then present back to the cabinet and involved parties to figure out exactly how this will all happen and when. What did the elders want with the revitalization project? There was a lot of um, interest in having a community centre. The community hub is an adaptive reuse of an existing building. So it was a former a health facility or a health, health facility? Yeah, health yeah. centre. Health centre. Yeah. What would um, it be used for? Well, you've got a whole lot of people and with the elders, they like to meet. At the moment, um, they've found mentoring of the youth is the best form of keeping them out of trouble. And when they're in trouble, hey, instead of being charged or something, bring them back to community and talk to the elders and, hey, listen, this is what we can do. Let's go and do... So you've got a space that can, away from the areas of trouble to do it and, and and you've got to understand they're not all trouble but it's it's about establishing a meeting place at the moment the meeting place is someone's house this, this is a this is no one's house but everyone's house so it's a place you can go to which hasn't got 
um, political yeah civic space yeah, yeah yeah and that's important in a community like if you don't have that then you become isolated and then there's no reason to stay there mm. there's also scope to uh, reinvest in some agricultural enterprise yep. so I know that Jamie O'Neill um, who's also part of the yep. Murray Bridge local Aboriginal council he's in discussions with an agronomist about uh, planting certain crops which are low economist yeah just a, a, an agricultural right. economist uh, yeah like, oh, right and they're in the process of developing uh, an enterprise which is low maintenance and low water because there are issues with water, obviously, in the dry season in that part of the world. And um, that would be a way of developing basically an income stream for the community, which is, I think, one of the major objectives across all of the projects. What would what would be on that land in terms of agriculture? Oh, well, Previously, there was um, grapes, yeah. um, and there's a lot of grapes grown in that region. Yeah. And I think they're talking about... Um, Various types of beans, like yeah. mung beans, um, that you can store especially for long, and almonds, yeah. Yeah. Um, things that you can store for long periods of time without them perishing. So that's, uh, I think, where that uh, scheme is. And some of my students are responding to that uh, potential as well as far as developing branding strategies for Murrum Bridge in terms of those kinds of enterprises. When do you see that? We're Sometimes hoping it's early next, next year. year. Yeah, early yeah. next year. And yeah. it's really what was inspiring for, for me when I was out there this last trip was on the day, on the Monday, a shopkeeper had a vacant shop there and allowed Campbell's um, crew to set up a, a shop front for the, a drop-in for the, the people of Lake Angelico to call in and have a look at what's being uh, proposed and how could we, what do you want? And, you know, it's, they had direct feedback into it. The energy he was getting things ready to... It wasn't, oh, yeah, well, there's a shop, see you later. He was carrying the the stuff in to help set the table to make sure this happened. You know, there was this urgency about making sure getting a result for their community. This was, hey, this is going to change people's lives. And, and it will. This is very, it's a big thing for that community. Alan Teal and Campbell Drake from the Murren Bridge Revitalisation Project. And on Friday, a number of Murren Bridge community members came down to Sydney to meet with those involved in the project and to go over the proposal that had been finalised. This would also be the next step in ensuring exactly what takes place, how much it costs and when it'll all begin. I haven't yet been able to catch up with Campbell or Alan since then, but we'll let you know in future weeks how everything is progressing. We hear a lot about how unachievable it is for young people to get in on the housing market, but I guess you don't consider the other end of the spectrum, which is older people who need that stability towards the end of their lives. And here's Alan Morris. He is a professor in the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at the University of Technology, Sydney. And he's put a book together called The Australian Dream, Housing Experiences of Older Australians. And he's spoken to older Australians from all different housing situations, from private renters to homeowners and to those in social housing. I remember interviewing one woman um, who basically used a whole pension to pay the rent and her daughter basically bought her food, you know, which is very humiliating and not very comfortable. She was very dependent on her and did not like that at all. The issue of independence was a very, very strong 
tray which emerged. People want to be independent. They don't want to live with their children. They don't want to depend on their children. And a lot of people can't depend on their children because either, you know, they might have poor relations, but even if they have a good relationship with their children, their children are also struggling very often. So the last thing they want to do is ask their children for money. You know, it's, it's not a, it's, they find that extremely difficult and humiliating. Did you find that experience across the board that there was just an anxiety when it came to their own housing? Yeah, it varies. The older private renters, there's constant anxiety and very, very deep levels of stress. They, they're not sure what's going to happen. They could be asked to leave at any point. Some of them had been fortunate and had found you know, empathetic landlords and felt safe and secure, but most of them felt extremely vulnerable. Your older social housing tenants generally felt comfortable and felt that they would be in their home till the end of their days. I mean, I did interview some social housing tenants, for example, in Miller's Point, which is threatened, where they have been threatened with removal, where, where they, and they were incredibly stressed. What, what did you talk to them about? Uh, well, I spoke to them about um, how they feel about the government's decision, how they feel about their future, what they're going to do, etc. And they feel completely devastated and betrayed. You know, they thought uh, this is their home for the rest of their lives. They have a... Uh, you know, Miller's Point was a unique community. It's the oldest public housing area in Australia. Historically, the connections between the residents was incredibly strong because the houses were passed on, not only you know, to family members, to children. A lot of the residents have been there for their whole lives or for many decades. So the one person I interviewed, for example, who's in her 80s, was born in the area. And she's completely and utterly devastated, you know. She feels that it's totally unjust. She can't really understand the decision. And the big issue about Miller's point is, you know, why do they have to move every single person? Why couldn't they let people who wanted to stay, especially the older people, why couldn't they let them stay there until the end of their days? What was the enormous compulsion for a few million dollars to move people and basically really destroy their lives? You know, this lady. What what was her plan next? Well, she was just trying to hang in there. You know, she was incredibly stressed, but she was just, I suppose, hoping that there would be some miraculous turnaround that government would relent and let her stay. She, I think, she's moving now. She has basically given up. It's just very, very hard to constantly resist government. You know, as a, as an individual. What's the overlying issue here? As in, what was the thing that you were putting all these interviews together, speaking to people in different situations? What was the thing to you that kind of stuck out as something needs to change? Well, clearly we have a total crisis in terms of older people, in terms of older Australians. is still, you know, fairly under the carpet. It's not really visible. People don't really realize what's going on out there. But I think this is a crisis which is becoming more and more intense and more and more deep and widespread. You know, if one looks at the 55 to 64 age cohort, the number of people in private rental is much greater than it is for the 65 plus. So all these baby boomers who people think are all, you know, all affluent, and that's mythology. A lot of them are comfortable, but a lot of them aren't comfortable. So, for example, if you take people in, um, in living by themselves in that 55 to 64 age cohort, 
one in five are private renters, and very few of them. Some of them will inherit a home, you know, when their parents die, but a lot of them won't. And so a lot of them are in very serious trouble because they'll be private renters once they stop working. You know, I think it's something which um, needs government intervention. The market can't resolve this problem. We have a major issue. The other big issue in Australia is that the private rental market is very lightly regulated. In other words, there's minimal security of tenure. Once your written lease ends, that's it. A landlord can give you notice without any reason whatsoever. As long as they give you written notice in 90 days, you can be booted out. And that is absolutely unbelievable, you know, especially if you imagine if you um, say 70 and fairly frail, it's very difficult to find alternative accommodation. Very often they don't, these, these private renters do not have uh, private transport. To go and inspect a home, you know, there'll be another 10 people there, all employed, etc. So it's extremely difficult to find, you know, for them to find housing. When you're talking percentage terms, it's very, very disarming. So you can say, oh, well, 8% of older Australians are private renters. But when you convert that into absolute numbers, you know, that 8% represents, you know, around about 200,000 people. You know, this is what one has to do. One has to think of, there are, well, tens of thousands of people in very, very vulnerable positions. And um, in the future, the numbers are going to increase tremendously. How did experiences compare from those in social housing to those who were private renters? Well, a lot of the people in social housing are very are quite content with their lives. You know, those who feel secure, they feel completely in control of their budget, whereas your older private renters feel very excluded and extremely vulnerable. They um, count every cent. Very often they have to deprive themselves you know, even with basics like food. Any um, extraordinary expense is creates enormous anxiety. So they need new glasses, for example, you know, a very basic item. They would find that extremely difficult. And they really are living, you know, day to day. What sort of support is out there for them? Well, there's no formal support. You know, the only support they get is the Commonwealth Rent Assistance, which, you know, in places like Sydney is really not enough. So it's around about $65 a week. But, you know, the medium rent for a one-bedroom apartment, as we know, in Sydney is around about $460. So it's, you know, it helps, but it's it's not a great help. Now, what we need is a serious endeavor to create affordable housing. And, um, you know, that requires decent, substantial government intervention, which we are not seeing at all. This notion that, you know, as I said earlier, that the market can provide affordable accommodation is a, is a nonsense. It just won't happen. What does that government intervention look like? What, would, what do you think it should look like? Well, I think there are a few things which can be done, you know, very quickly. I mean, for example, the, you know, in the last election campaign, there was a lot of discussion around negative gearing and capital gains tax. And, uh, you know, the Liberal Party dropped that. To me, that's a very, very serious error. I mean, because what that's doing, it's really pushing up the price of property. It's making housing a commodity. I mean, housing should really be a place where people live. You know, the use value should be the, the crucial feature, not the exchange value, not what you can accumulate from housing. And unfortunately, real estate, you know, is seen as the major form of, um, as a major form of accumulating wealth. 
And as long as we have that situation where the tax structure facilitates this mentality, we're in trouble. You know, so that's one thing that can be done. The other thing which could be done, I think, is that um, you know, we could build 20,000 social housing dwellings a year. What people forget is that historically, even in Australia, for example, between 1985 and 1995, 115,000 public houses were built. You know, it can be done. It will provide a lot of jobs. I mean, we have $50 billion to devote to build in 12 submarines. I mean, you know, have you ever heard such an absurdity? And we can't devote, you know, a few billion dollars a year to provide in social housing for an increasingly desperate population. Even over the past couple of years, I've pretty much been told by everyone that I'll never own my own house. (laughs) And, And this isn't just... For me, this is indicative of a lot of people in my generation is we're just never, ever going to get to the point of being able to own a home. My parents owned a home before I was even born, but that is, it's it's unheard of these days. What do you think it's going to be like for my generation? Yeah, I think um, it's a huge issue. It's massive. You know, and I'm amazed how passive the population is actually. It's, I mean, some people choose to rent, you know, it gives you flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. But there comes a time when it's very difficult. People in their 20s, are, it's, it's a huge issue. I mean, you will own a home when your, your parents ultimately pass away, you know, but you, they, you might be 50 by then. Who knows? People are living longer and longer. But there are many, many vulnerable groupings, people with disability, who are not in the labor force, people who are unemployed. I mean, what is happening now, which, which our project is looking at, is more and more people are stuck in the private rental market. So we have what's this concept of a long-term private rental, which is 10 years or more. And for many people, it's become a lifetime experience. And it creates enormous anxiety, you know, especially for people with children. People want stability for their kids. You want your kids to go to the same school, you know, they have friends, and then you've got to move. It's especially difficult for low-income households. And, you know, many people in Australia are low-income households. You know, the bottom 20% of households don't earn very much, and they're using a very large proportion of their income to pay the rent. One of my partner's friends actually just purchased a property in Wollongong. It's, it just seems like another something else a contributing factor is urban sprawl. What's your take on the phenomenon that is urban sprawl? Look, I think um, it's a good point. And um, what we have, what's already in existence in Australia, of course, is a, like, is a class structure, but also a privileged spatial structure. You know, so people in the inner ring around Sydney, obviously in a very good position, you know, I cycle to work. But a lot of people, you know, are spending an hour, hour and a half, two hours commuting to work. I mean, this is incredibly uh, stressful. It impacts on family life. It impacts on the individual, very unhealthy, to sit in a motor car, for example, for an hour, you know, three hours a day. Then, of course, as I was going to say, yeah, the environment, you know, it's very bad for global warming. And, of course, our public transport systems, you know, very underdeveloped. So this is a very, a very, very bad situation. And, of course, if you become unemployed, if you lose your job and you happen to be living far out, from areas of employment, you know, you have what's often called a spatial mismatch. It's very difficult. You have to commute in to find work, etc. You know, it, it makes finding work much more difficult. 
It's having a whole lot of unintended consequences, this housing affordability crisis. I think the impacts, you know, are still being felt and we're not really sure what's happening out there. Alan Morris, Professor in the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at UTS. Thanks for listening to Think Sustainability. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. We're also on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Lee Beater. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.